0: In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Yes, it's Fourth of State for the week beginning Monday the 16th of March, live on 2SER Radio and across the Community Radio Network, your weekly look at the world of journalism and the media. My name's Jack Fisher. Tonight, well, it might just be the biggest media court case of the year. Treasurer Joe Hockey versus Fairfax Media over articles in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald last year headlined, Treasurer for Sale. Also, journalists and the Islamic State. What's it like trying to interview an IS fighter? And who in their right minds would travel to IS-controlled territory for a good story? Well, joining me in the studio tonight, Margot Saville, Sydney writer for Cracky. Lima Samanda, court reporter with the Daily Daily Telegraph. Hi Lima. Hello. And we've got Elise Pataka, journalist with SBS. Hi, Elise. Hi. Uh, Now, Treasurer Joe Hockey spent two days last week in court. Now, he's taking on Fairfax media over articles that appeared across Fairfax mastheads last year proclaiming treasurer for sale. Fairfax is maintaining they never said the treasurer was corrupt, in fact, pointing to an accompanying editorial that said the opposite. Now, what's in a headline like treasurer for sale then? Is it necessarily an implication of corruption, Margo?
1: Well, it's really up to um, the, the court decides what would the reasonable person decide. It used to be the reasonable man. It's now the reasonable person. And... Um, so they're, they're the arguments that the, are being put to the judge and the judge has to decide, um, would a reasonable person think that this was corruption? That's up
0: to the judge. Yeah, what do you think, Leema?
2: Uh, well, it's certainly a very strong headline as far as headlines go. Um, it is up to Justice White to decide whether it is um, defamatory or not, but, um, uh, you know, you are just got to think about... You walk past a news agency, you see that placard you might not necessarily buy the paper and if you do buy the paper you might not necessarily read the editorial page. So it is interesting, it's a very fascinating case.
0: Margot, about this headline Treasurer for Sale, I mean how much room is there in a, in a headline like that? Could it mean anything but that the Treasurer is in fact corrupt?
1: Well, um, that's what the defence has been, a very narrow definition of corruption. Um, so they're saying it merely they're selling access, they're selling contact with the Treasurer, that they're giving these people an opportunity to see the Treasurer, That, that but that d- doesn't necessarily mean corruption. So, um, you know, obviously both sides have a different interpretation. Was the
0: headline a sensationalist one? What do you think, Leema? Uh
2: Well, it's certainly a strong one. Um, sensationalist, like, I don't know. I, I think it's, a, it's quite a strong headline. Um, you wouldn't not notice it. I would definitely notice it. Sometimes when I see a Herald front page, I don't really pick up a headline. Um, but this one, I, I would. You know, you don't not notice it.
3: I, what
0: do you think, Elise?
2: Well, I just have to
3: wonder, you know, if you, if you go for a defamation case, aren't you just drawing, drawing more attention to the original article and, and, the, and the headline?
1: The Streisand effect.
3: Yeah, yeah, and I just think that, you know, this is it could have just kind of been buried and, you know, we wouldn't be talking about it today, but, you know, when the Treasurer's in court and everyone's sort of, you know, the, 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 the headlines on Twitter, uh, you know, day in, day out, it just makes more people um, go back to the original article.
0: Yeah, he's taken two days out of Parliament, I suppose. Well, I don't know if necessarily out of Parliament, but he's spent two days in court, hasn't he, Joe Hockey? What do you make of that?
1: Um, it's interesting because he's... Um Look, I don't think he's an ideal witness. Um, He's quite short-tempered and dismissive at times. And every now and again they'll ask him, you know, did you do this or did you do that? And he says, you know, look, I was busy being Treasurer of Australia. In other words, don't bother me with these details. And that kind of reminds you, but hang on a minute, you've been Treasurer of Australia for 18 months and we still don't have a budget. Mm. So um, if you were being Treasurer of Australia, you're actually not doing that fantastic a job at the moment. So that kind of reminds you of that. And also, it. I mean, as Elise says, it does remind you of the issue of, of parties receiving money from the mm. public. And the, what the North Sydney Forum did wasn't illegal, but, you know, does it pass the barbecue test?
0: So there were these text messages read out in court. I'll go through one of them. I won't say it uh, out loud on radio, but the AGES editor wrote to the Sydney Morning Herald's editor of Joe Hockey, basically, F him. Now, the Herald editor, Darren Goodsir, conceded that, that probably wasn't an appropriate way to talk about the Treasurer. Why should it matter what editors say behind closed doors, Mugger?
1: Um, because it goes to the issue of malice. so um Fairfax has got a qualified defence to it, which is reasonable. It's basically that they b- behaved reasonably, um and you can't use that defence if you've been shown to be malicious. So that's why they're making such a big deal of the you know of the texts and the the kind of the behind the scenes um chat about the treasurer.
0: And if that weren't the case, I suppose are they expected? editors to maintain this veneer of impartiality even in their private lives and private conversations?
1: I don't think anyone really should be impartial about anything, especially editors, but they should probably just keep it off their telephones. You know, I, I think, you know, really journalists of all people should know that everything is public these days. And if you really want to have, you know, a nasty conversation about someone, just do it. Face-to-face, just don't put it in writing. Who
2: on earth would have thought that this would go to trial and that these texts would be read out to the world?
3: You know, obviously journalists and editors, you all have your own particular um, thoughts and opinions and, um, you know, I guess some people you like are better than others, um, but, you know, it is probably a little bit foolish to put those kinds of thoughts and opinions in text messages and, and emails.
0: Now, Hockey claims that this Fairfax article treasurer for sale has caused him great distress, basically, that he couldn't show his face near a cafe that day, and his father, his ageing father, who is, I believe, a Fairfax subscriber, was shocked by the allegations. Of course, Joe survived that fierce budget interview with Sarah Ferguson and the infamous cigar scenario. I mean, what is it about this allegation of corruption that is so sensitive for him, Elise? Look,
3: I don't really know. I find it a bit of a mystery. I think... I mean, all I can sort of see is that it's sort of a big distraction from the other, you know, the fact that the budget is is has is still, a, you know, a mess. And so while this is all going on, we're, we're not thinking about budget issues. Um, you know, I don't know whether it has something to do with the ICAC investigation and the fact that people do feel nervous when corru- the word corruption is, or, you know, your name is sort of in an article with um, Eddie Obeid. Um yeah, maybe Margot or Lima have, have more
2: thoughts on this. I think if you're on the front page of any major newspaper, it's quite different to, um, I guess, Twitter or a picture of a cigar or interview. It's it's quite powerful still, especially a, a newspaper like The Herald, Canberra Times and The Age. Um, it is, there is context in that as well, I think.
0: What do you think, Margot?
1: Um, Yes, I I think it would be, if you're an elected official, devastating to be called, to to be thought of as corrupt.
0: Yeah. Now, Joe Hockey has accused Fairfax Media editors of basically, as we were saying, running a relentless campaign against him. Of course, we've heard this one before. I mean, at the last federal election, Kevin Rudd accused News Corp of having a campaign against Labour, basically. Is there a difference here, at least?
3: I guess you know, all yeah. Politicians often like to say that or think that certain newspapers are on either on their side or against them at certain times. Um, and probably you could argue the point in some cases. But um, yeah, I don't know what the comparison here
2: would be with them. Um, I don't know how you'd actually measure that.
0: Yep. What do you think, Leema?
2: Um, I think that politicians allege all kinds of things against all newspapers, but we we don't really expect them to be litigious and take it to. To trial. I mean, I, I certainly didn't. And courts. I spent every day in courts, and it's it's a very long process. It can take years. It's boring. It's expensive. Um, so I, I just I'm just a bit surprised
1: that it, it has come to court.
0: Margot, can a politician just allege a vendetta every time they get criticised in the press?
1: Um, Well, I I think that's our job, isn't it, to hold them to account for everything on either side. And so I think it's good that they're upset about it. You know, I think any journalist who's best friends with a politician is not doing their job. So um, if they're aggrieved and upset and unhappy, then we're doing the right job.
0: Now, under cross-examination, Joe Hockey was unable to identify a tweet from his own Twitter account from 2013. His Twitter account tweeted about Kevin Rudd and a read access to Rudd at a price fact very similar sort of thing. What's up with these politicians Twitter accounts? I mean when can we expect that their tweets are, are really from them Elise?
3: Look, I don't know the answer to that either. I'd, I'd like to know the answer. I'd like to know who's um, who's tweeting on behalf of our you know elected representatives. Um, obviously they're pretty busy people so I don't know. Um, you know, should there be some diary where we, where they write down who's, who's um, put out what tweets? So then we can go back in these cases and see whether they are sort of really to blame or one of their staffers. I don't know. Yeah,
0: Lema.
2: Um, I always thought that they initialled it when yes. they did. No, do
0: that, I think that was Barack I mean, Obama? Yeah, Barack that.
2: Obama, Julia Gillard did the JG. Um, so I, I'm not really sure. I thought Joe Hockey wrote his own tweets.
0: Margot, what do you think the the function, I suppose, of a of a Twitter account for a politician need be? Seems they're often sledging the other side on it.
1: Um, I think they're usually pretty boring, aren't they? They're not. I've never picked up any real news from them. They are usually just press releases or, as you say, sledging. What about Julie Julie Bishop and her emoji? Oh no, they're they're excellent. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now Joe Hockey's barrister says. Well, 2,500 treasurer-for-sale placards were distributed to newsagents, and he reckons around 100 people would have seen each one. So I want to ask, of course, print media numbers are on the on the wane, but what does a saga like this safer print's potency these days, Margaret?
1: I don't know. I only see one a day um, on my way to the bus stop. So... Um I, I guess, um, you know, Joe's of a certain age. I, I guess he sees print as being very important. Perhaps a younger politician would be less affected by that and more affected by tweet. I think it's I think it's a function of what generation you are. What do you reckon, Leema?
2: Um I, I also just see one a day, but um, at the same time that, like I said before, the front page of a newspaper, a major newspaper, can still become a, a news story, I mean... If you think back to the news corp front page of the packer brawl, that became a story in itself. Mm. So you can't discount, you know, front page newspapers and placards.
1: I rushed out and bought the paper that day. Yeah, at
3: <laughs> um, I think it's like what Lima was saying before as well. You might not actually read the article, but you might just see that placard, and it might lead you to, you know, make a certain um, assumption about what what the the article says.
0: Is there an understanding by editors or by whoever looks after the placards these days that? While a lot of people won't necessarily look inside the paper, the placard is an important thing in determining what they're covering that day. What do you think, Margot?
1: I think for most editors, you know, they're very focused on people buying the paper, especially these days, and whether you actually read the content inside, you know, they're more concerned that you pass over your $2, 50 or $3. Um, So I, I guess that, you know, that is a marketing
0: tool for them. Yeah, Lima. I mean, if everyone's going online... But as you say, that's the one you see, and you see it every morning as you get to the bus stop. I mean, that still counts for something, I suppose.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure who writes our ones, but they're they're always quite strong. Yep. When I will I see them,
0: <laughs> <laughs> do you stop at a bus stop at least? Do you see the placards?
2: Um.
3: Yeah, actually, I have to say, I don't. I don't know whether I do notice them as I walk past the. I mean, I walk to the train every morning. Don't know whether I notice them that much when I walk past the newsagent. Yeah. Right. Maybe because I've got my head stuck on, on my phone looking at Twitter.
0: Welcome back to 4th Estate. My name's Jack Fisher. My guest this week, Margot Saville, Sydney reporter at Crikey. Uh, Lise Pataka, journalist with SBS. And Lima Samanda, court reporter at The Daily Telegraph. Well, last week, Australians learned about Jake Bellardi, a Melbourne teenager, who was discovered to have fled to Islamic State-held territories in Iraq, where he's believed to have now died. SBS had a scoop in publishing an interview with Jake Bellardi last week, which Elise Pataket, joining us here, uh, managed to score last December over Twitter. Now, Elise, you seem to have contacted a number of Islamic State supporters. What were the odds that the teenager who you spoke to in December happened to hit national headlines this week?
3: Um, look, it's. I, th- I think you know a lot of Australians who are going over there. You know they're basically taking a huge risk, and they are a lot of them going over there with this idea that they, they want to be martyrs, um, and you know, um, death is glorious. So I, I don't think it's that unusual that he would have, you know, carried out this this dream that he had and suddenly made headlines here.
0: You got in touch with him as part of producing a story for Al Jazeera Television, looking at Australian foreign fighters, as they're called. What was that like? What did that turn out?
3: Uh, As part of the research for that, I I did uh, make contact with a number of Australians who are either Islamic State supporters or, um, you know, people who are actually over there. And um, I guess it was interesting because what it sort of revealed to me was that there's not... One profile for these people who are going over. You might have someone like Jake Bellati, who's you know a smart kid um, by all accounts, um, you know convert, um, you know young, doesn't have a criminal history. Or you might have someone like um, you might have heard of Khalid um, Muhammad Aloma, who had sort of were gang uh, had been in gangs and had um, you know criminal past. So um, while we sometimes like to think that there's just this one. Type of person going over. It's, it's, it's an indication that there's not. Um, and also, I guess it sort of revealed to me that, that the people who, who do go over do have a very strong conviction um, and religious, you know, set of religious beliefs. Um, and they believe in a very sort of, or in, a, in a, an extreme form of Islam that, you know, tells them that it's the, the right thing to do to go over to a place where there's Sharia law and it's a country for supposedly for Muslims to live in.
0: It is a very specific type of a specific doctrine. This Wahhabi Salafi. I mean, how did how did this teenager from your discussions come to be involved with that? Do you know?
3: Ah, uh, look, he said to me that he converted. I think it was two years ago. Um, he had he was from an atheist family, and he told me that he was an atheist, but had um, been looking at different religions and had finally come to Islam as the religion that he. Um, that sort of resonated, I guess, with him. Um, And, you know, beyond that, I don't really know, apart from, you know, the other things that have come out about him, which is, you know, that his mother died, which was shortly before he converted, um, and that, you know, you sort of say it seems like maybe he was bullied at school and was sort of one of those really smart kids, but possibly a little bit socially awkward. Um, You start sort of putting a picture together, but it's, yeah, it's really hard to sort of know what really pushed him in that direction.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, How many supporters did you end up getting in contact with through that process of research?
3: Oh, it would have been... um, I'm not sure altogether. There's probably, you know, a dozen or so.
0: Um, What's it like scoping them out on Twitter? I mean, what sort of things are you looking for?
3: Oh, I guess I'm just sort of interested to see how they justify, you know, the violence of the Islamic State. I want to know, you know, what makes a young person so interested in supporting... Islamic State and and what takes a young person from, you know, the peace and security of Australia over to a war zone, you know, and to a place where they know that they probably won't be able to come back
0: from. What's it like establishing, I suppose, a connection with them and building it to a point where they trust you enough to give you something <laughs> of value?
3: Uh, look, I think one thing about them is that, that they're not averse to telling their stories. Like they, you know, they do for whatever reason, whether it's just kind of, bravado or whatever, they do often want to sort of share a bit of their, or share their views on stuff, not just share their experience, but share their views and tell you why they think the Islamic State is, you know, um, the best thing. So I guess for a journalist, it's kind of interesting because, you know, you, you kind of think, well, on the one hand, they're sort of against the West and against, people like me, you know, I'm not particular, I'm not religious. um, And yet at the same time, they want to sort of speak to people like me. And maybe that's also part of, you know, the the propaganda of the Islamic State. So you also have to start thinking about that when you're talking to them and what you'll publish and what you won't publish.
0: Are you appealing to their bravado or perhaps their (laughs) ego when you're trying to elicit information out of them?
3: No, I think each person's an individual. So it's like, you know, it's like doing any kind of interview. You're, You're trying to find a kind of... You know, you just, you just basically want to know if they're going to talk to you and, and, and if you can, um, you know, if they're going to be someone who's in a position where they can give you more than just the kind of um, a superficial understanding. So, yeah, I think it's pretty much the same as interviewing anyone.
0: Yeah. What do our panel make of this one? I mean, do you use Twitter for interviews at all, either of you?
1: Um, I do, actually. <coughs> I'm, I'm always on Twitter looking for information, basically, so I think it's a really important part of finding out about someone.
0: Mm. Layman, do you use Twitter much?
2: Um, I do use it, but I don't, because I'm a court reporter, I'll have to report what's in the court. Um, so I don't really use it that much for court reporting purposes.
0: Elise, you touched before on Jake Bellati's atheism and the fact that he just lost his mother. I think his parents had been divorced for some time. Miranda Devine, of course, came out with a, a column on The weekend, sort of uh, attributing perhaps some of these factors outside of Jake's control, I assume, for his terrible decision. What did you make of that?
3: Well, it's like what I was saying before, you know, the, the federal police will tell you there's no one profile. And I think, you know, I'm not a counter-terrorism expert or a jihadi expert. But, you know, if you speak to people like, um, you know, Ann Azar Ali, who's at Curtin University, and she looks at this area quite a lot, um, they'll tell you that it's not, you know, it's not just sort of some kid who's from a poor family or whose parents are divorced or you know there's no one reason why someone becomes um radicalized for want of a better better term um there can be many factors and um you know it takes all types of people i think it's like any kind of extremism you know any kind of um you know some people are just maybe more inclined to take a narrow focus on the world and you know find find a cause and and kind of be
1: blind to everything else around them.
0: Okay. Margot, what did you make of Miranda's column?
1: Well, I'm I'm the child of divorced atheist parents, so, um, (laughs) you know, there's always a possibility, I suppose, that I could become (laughs) radicalised and join IS as a late developer. Um, I I thought it was um, simplistic. I agree Mm. with Elise, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, Now, Vice News, which was launched a year ago, scored a massive coup with their documentary The Islamic State. They got an Arab reporter who gained unprecedented access to film in Raqqa in Syria how attractive is a scoop like this to a journalist and how dangerous, Margo?
1: Um, I I think most of us secretly long to be embedded in some very dangerous war situation. <laughs> for yourself. Uh, <laughs> I was so envious of Kate Geraghty when she was tasered, you know, in the Israeli blockade because I felt, you know, one that was a journalistic badge of honour and something you could talk about for the rest of your life. You know, I look, you know, as a boring suburban mother of two, I, you know, that would be fantastic. It'd be great.
0: (laughs) Do you think journalists are are frank about the the so-called badges of honour or do they pretend like they don't exist when they do?
1: Um, Well, Kate, Kate, you know, did dine out on that for years um, and is probably still talking about it to her great credit. Um, You know, I I think people pretend to be embarrassed and shy about it but secretly are thrilled.
0: And embedding with the Islamic State, I mean... Is it appropriate for journalists to embed with a, a militant organisation of, of that nature? What do you think? I, well, I, I
1: sort of belong to the, you know, anything, whatever it takes, school of getting the story. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure that we as three women would be eligible to join Islamic State.
0: Naima, what do you think?
2: Um, I think journalists have been embedding themselves in all kinds of organisations all over for years, decades. Um, so I don't think it's anything new. I don't think it'll ever stop. We do need to know what's going on. Yeah, at least if you're game, which I'm. Yeah, not. look, I,
3: I think it's interesting because I think um, you know Syria is at the moment I think one of the, is possibly the most dangerous country for journalists, and I think you know I mean I know of people who I think are a little bit foolhardy and do do you know go into. Um, Conflict zones where I think, you know, and sometimes, you know, you've got to weigh up, you know, is that story your story to tell? And is that a story that could be told in another way that doesn't involve you putting yourself at risk? And then, you know, governments and families having to kind of deal with the problems if you suddenly, um, you know, get kidnapped or, you know, God forbid, beheaded. Um, So I think, you know, journalists do need to, and and news agencies need to think um, very carefully about um, choosing stories from those areas and sending in reporters and I I think the Vice doco like I like I think it's amazing doco and I think the journalist um, you know good on him for for doing it but I also think obviously you know Vice there was no way that Vice could guarantee his safety and you know as long as everyone's on the same page about that I guess you know fair enough but you know it's a tricky one I think.
0: Indeed he had a lot of experience I think that that journalist in a lot of hairy situations well, there's been another round of redundancies at Fairfax. Staff at three of their largest Victorian newspapers are looking at having their newsrooms sliced in half. Fairfax are looking at 62 editorial redundancies. We're seeing the pivot away from regional reporting echoed in perhaps the scrapping of state-based 730 reports. Are Rural newsrooms, are they suffering the first cutbacks in media organisations, and what impact is this going to have on rural, rural Australia, at least?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's really sad that, you know, budgets are being cut, you know, journalism budgets are sort of going the way they are. And and I guess organisations are making choices about where they think, you know, centralising um, news. So, you know, that might be sort of putting all the rural newsrooms into one, you know, making one hub. And, you know, obviously, I think that is a big loss for communities if you don't have people who can be out on the ground and in those communities reporting and hearing things from people um, but it's, you know, the state of play of journalism, I think, is a lot of tough decisions are about funding are having to be made.
0: Leymah, you're at a newspaper. or the, um, the rural newsrooms first to go?
2: I don't know what it's like at news. I haven't worked there for that long. Um, but I did work at Fairfax and I did work at AAP and, and I did survive some brutal cuts. Somehow I did.
0: And what do you think it means for the people of the country?
2: Well... It's it's obviously not a good thing. Regional newsrooms are really important, as well as local papers as well. I used to work at local papers. You you lose, yeah, you lose some valuable people, and you you don't get to hear some really good stories because we can only cover so many stories at the
1: region at the metros.
0: Yeah, Margot, what do you make of this?
1: I I think it's a real shame because I think rural Australia is at the forefront of issues like climate change, um, and if we don't have those kind of voices telling us about that, um, then we lose a great deal. Also, um, politically, you know, you will see so many... For instance, you know, there's a very good independent um, candidate up there in Barnaby Joyce's seat for the state election, that sort of thing, and it's the local papers and the local newsrooms that really get to know those candidates very well. Um, So I think if we lose that, that's a terrible shame.
0: Crikey last year published a job description that read, a reporter should be required to write six stories a day two leads, two down pages and two briefs while ensuring all copy is error-free and published immediately to the web and taking and archiving images for future use. Is this too much to ask, Elise?
3: Oh, look, I think most journalists probably wouldn't want to have that all on on their plate. Um, I think, yeah, I think at the moment, um, you know, a lot of journalists are being asked to kind of be real multitaskers and, and do... Um, more things than ever before and I think that's just another sign of the times I think it's, you know, my question would be, you know, with the limited budget that news outlets now have, where do they put their money and, you know, is some of the precious dollars that could be going to, um, you know, lessening the the burden on their reporters um, be put there rather than somewhere else where it's not as necessary? Um, you know, but I don't know, I'm not in the management of a news organisation. I, I, I imagine it must be very tough. Yeah.
0: Well, that's it from us on 4th Estate this week. Don't forget you can check out all our podcasts on the 2SER website and you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you to our guests, Margot Saville, Lima Samantha and Elise Pataka. My name's Jack Fisher. We'll be back at the same time next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's 4th Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3 and at 2SER.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2 scr and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.